Hi, this is Peter Diamandis. Welcome to Exponential Wisdom. Myself and my dear friend, Dan Sullivan. Dan, good afternoon, my friend. Hi, Peter. Our weather recently has been as good as California. That's all I can say about Canada right now. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm sure there's a lot of things good about Canada. When I was growing up, I used to see Socialist Canada with this extraordinary tax rate. And now living in the United States, I'm like, man, it'd be so much cheaper to live in Canada. <laughs> Yeah, actually, if you were using American dollars, that would be true. <laughs> <laughs> but not the subject of today's, no, uh, no. today's conversation. Dan, I would love to talk today about something which I'm dearly passionate about, which is flipping our biggest problems into our biggest opportunities. I call this the notion that our problems are our gold mines, the world's biggest challenges or the world's biggest business opportunities. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think it's great, Peter. And we often talk about mindsets. You know, your book, Abundance, was all about mindsets. The book, Bold, is all about mindset. When people come to Abundance 360, it's all about mindset. And I think that your ability to see great entrepreneurial breakthroughs in what other people think as failures and breakdowns and setbacks is fundamentally a mindset issue. It is. And so... As people are listening to this, my question is, if you're facing a big problem right now in your company, in your one of your organizations, the question is, how do you train yourself? And this is a matter of training and the kind of things that you do at Coach all the time to stop and say, okay, this is a huge problem. It's causing me stress. It's causing me a lot of extra work. It's whatever has the potential to take down my company, whatever. But how can I flip this and see this as a massive opportunity? And, you know, what I've been teaching companies is to really go out of your way to catalog your problems, problems you have with your employees or the problems your employees are having with the company, problems with your suppliers, problems with your customers, and actually begin to mine those as potential startups because I think there are opportunities. You can see this whenever there's a big breakthrough, Peter. Our world over the last couple of decades with the superpowering of all sorts of new technologies with microchip technology and the, the internet and bandwidth and everything else. If you trace back to where that all got started, something fundamental was failing in society or people were putting up with things that were really annoying them, irritating them. And it was only when the breakthrough came along that they realized how irritated they had been Oftentimes, people can't really see a solution until it's right in front of them because then they realize how bad things were before the solution came. So I think the kind of training that you're talking about is kind of sensing out just how people are experiencing something right now at a very subpar level. I agree. And you've said this, Dan, a few times, your eyes only see and your ears only hear what you're looking for which I think is a brilliant piece of wit. Did I quote you correctly there? Yeah, what your brain is looking for. Yeah, what your brain is looking for, and it's so true. So unless you're looking for solutions, like there's a fire hydrant in the room, and you will not notice that there's a fire hydrant in the room until someone yells fire, and you notice the fire, and then all of a sudden you're mm -hmm. scanning just for a fire extinguisher, not a fire hydrant, a fire extinguisher. So I want to pose a process for anybody listening. If you run a company, if you run an organization, I'm not sure this could work for a family, but maybe it does. But the way I think about this 
is, and I have a team of uh, about five or so in my PhD ventures that runs Abundance 360 and my books and my speaking, and I call it my strike force. And these are all millennials, 20-something-year-olds that are really smart, really capable. So the question is, do you have some access to some millennials in your community, in your organization? And give them the challenge of saying, all right, I want you to take the next two or three weeks, and I want you to go and interview our employees. I want you to go and interview our customers. I want you to go and interview our suppliers and ask them, what is the problem that if it were fixed in our relationship, in our company, in our products, that would be really, really meaningful to you, that you consider would improve our relationship, would improve the value of what we're doing. And if you can have those individuals catalog those ideas in detail, list them, and then prioritize them, and almost prioritize them in a sense of, okay, which problem, if solved, had the biggest impact on revenues or well-being of the company? What would be the rough cost of solving that problem? How difficult and long would it take? You'd end up with a list of amazing opportunities for your company. And then the question is, once you have the top five so, what about investing in some of those millennials to start a company or a product to actually go and solve those things? I think that's a fun way to identify opportunities and to solve problems. You know, I've been reading very extensively about right where you're operating, Peter, in the Santa Monica area, which is kind of like the hidden technological center. Everybody thinks of the Silicon Valley. But what I was looking at, at the nature of most of the companies, I think there's like 1,800 companies within about two or three miles from where where you are right now, it really, really struck me. First, they're millennials, and then secondly, they're just kind of looking at things very, very differently about where's the world going to be five years from now, 10 years from now. And I I think you're very right that obviously young people are going to see really different things than people who have just gotten accustomed to them. You know, I mean, I'm in my 70s right now. And for the most part, 70-year-olds, you know, just aren't coming up with a lot of solutions right now. So I think that's the (laughs) biggest thing. But the other thing is that unless you ask people to really talk about the problem that keeps them awake at night, and I use the word irritate, what are you finding really irritating now? I mean, every time you experience that, you're irritated. And most people, their experiences of being irritated are not really vocalized. They're not really mm-hmm. articulated. But if you had a task force team, like a SWAT team, that went in and actually asked them the questions and say, you know, you know, what is the thing that really irritates you? And if it were gone and it were completely solved, what would it look like? And then you can start knitting together a whole scenario. I think you're on to how startups, new startups, breakthrough startups actually get launched. My friend Cody, who's one of my Strikeforce members, uh, made this observation. You know, I've always been talking about it's important to find your passion. Equally important would be to find the things that really you hate or irritate you. Mm -hmm. And it's about the emotional charge. So it might be the positive passion or it might be the negative energy that I hate the way hospitals work or whatever the case might Mm -hmm. be and I want to fix them. And those two things together, it's about the emotional energy. And our friend Tony Robbins talks about this that you'll put into things. It's what drives you to keep going. And it could be the positive or the negative. But 
ultimately, you're right, a list of things that irritate you or irritate your customers or your employees that you can solve and make your company better and more profitable. I wish the government would do this. <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> well, here's the point. I wrote a blog. I used to have a blog, which was called The Global Thinker, 10, 15 years ago. And I said, you know, the biggest source of raw material for new services, especially new services in society, is just the incredible array in which government irritates us and annoys us because <laughs> there's just a tremendous number of breakthroughs and workarounds that government continually provides in a negative sense every day, which from an entrepreneurial standpoint, you can say, well, this is how people are irritated. How would they really like to have it? What's the interface they would like to receive this type of service? As I'm thinking this through, because this idea originally originated for me when I was giving a keynote to a group of hospital CEOs, and at the end of me showing them how they were going to be disrupted, they threw up their hands and said, what do we do? And I was like, you really need to invent your way out of this. You can't just do what you've been doing. You need to find some smart people and start some startups and give them the power to fix these things. Mm -hmm. And I think what some of the other points to make is you don't have to fix everything, but as soon as mm -hmm. you pick one problem or two problems and invest and fix that, people start to get the sense that, okay, I don't have to keep complaining about problems. I'm now empowered to fix them. And that mindset of permission to fix and change the status quo, because we're so used to operating the way we always operate that we just assume it's invariable. But of course, that's our mind playing a trick on us. Peter, there was just a couple of examples, which probably everybody listening really knows, how Netflix blew... Blockbuster. Yeah, Blockbuster. Blockbuster. They blew Blockbuster. And because getting in the car, going and renting something and then taking it home, watching it, and then if you were late, they charged you. People were just irritated beyond belief about the process, and then Netflix just took it over like that. And the reason is that they took the irritation factor and turned it into a positive, pleasant experience. Everybody knows Uber right now. I mean, there's not a day when I'm not looking at two or three Uber things, but how annoyed we were with the taxi, taxi service, yeah. taxi service. Steve Jobs, I remember Steve Jobs and Henry Ford to use two big giants of American entrepreneurship, they said, you know, people oftentimes don't know that they were looking for a solution until the solution is actually created and presented to them. All they have is an irritation factor that gets relieved at a certain point, and there's just this massive jump for the new solution. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, Reed Hastings, who I know is the CEO and founder of Netflix, exactly. He was just irritated by these late fees that he had to play Blockbuster. Yeah. And little did they know, I mean, so if you're a CEO of a company or running an organization, the things that you do to irritate your customers is seeding your competition. <laughs> and that, yeah. will, that will take you Creating out. Creating your yes. competition, yeah, yeah. We have Netflix, of course, at home, and you don't always choose right. You say, I wonder what this one's like, and it's a dog, you're five minutes into it, and you say, oh! So we blew $3.50, or if you got the monthly, you didn't really blow anything. But the biggest thing is to blow time. It's not even money. 
What if you heard about a blockbuster video and you made the trip and you got it and you brought it home and you're five minutes into it and it's a dog, you know? I mean, now you're really ticked off because it's not just money, it's actually the massive amount of time you've put out. And I think that there's a series of qualities that these breakthroughs always have. One of them is things are just faster they're easier, they're cheaper. So there's a set of things that we really respond to when a new solution comes along. What Larry Page talks about, and I write about in bold, one of the primary features is being customer-centric. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, it is being customer-centric. And it's such an obvious thing, right? We all, of course, want to create something for our customers that they want. But if you're an entrepreneur and you're looking for your next venture, you can I think have some fun people you talk with and just go through and list off the things that tick you off. And therein lies some great opportunities. I would say this too, Peter, about that is sometimes you ask the wrong questions because you're asking people product-specific questions. And oftentimes those are the worst questions because where the real breakthroughs are don't really have anything to do with your product or your business. It's just how are they looking at their life in general and where in their life are they actually irritated about things. Logically, there's no reason for Apple to go into music. Logically, there's no reason for another tech company that's been famous with computers to go into telephones. You can say, well, you could just see the logic of them doing that, but there was no logic at the time before they did it. And I think in order to really dig down and find out what people are doing and to use the customer-centric, remember you have to go to the center of how the customer is looking at the world, period, not in relationship to your product or your service, because that binds them into where it is. And the other way, it sounds a bit manipulative, too, you know, that the only reason you're asking the question is because you're thinking about yourself, and really you have to get inside the person and say, well, how are they experiencing life anyway? What are the issues that they're experiencing? And that's where the new products and breakthroughs and services actually come through. It's not in relationship to your product. It's really important and a great point, Dan. I was just a couple of days ago on stage with two of the greatest innovative minds on the planet, Astro Teller, who runs Google X, and Steve Jurvetson, who's one of the top tech venture capitalists in the world. He's backed SpaceX and Tesla and quantum computing companies and synthetic genomics and just an amazing eclectic mix. And we're talking about disruption. And in our audience was a group of executives from the 30 of the Fortune 200 companies. And one of the things that really came away is I've talked about this, that if you don't disrupt yourself, someone else will. And Steve and Astro were making the point that very few, like maybe zero companies, maybe a small handful, have actually ever disrupted themselves. What they do is they disrupt adjacent industries. I think that's an important part. So one of the things I'm adapting my messaging is like, okay, if you've got a revenue engine that's going well, what can you use your unfair advantage, your capabilities to go and disrupt in an adjacency? And this was Of course, Steve Jobs in the music industry, Apple and the phone industry, Google and the automotive industry and such. I was thinking about the electric car because you've been right in sort of the pioneering stage with your association with Google. 
and everybody's getting into this now. You can see that there's a real wave of people thinking about it. But two factors, the one you pointed out to me and the other one, because you pointed this out to me, I just got really interested in an article. But one is there's 40,000 Americans killed every year. In a really good year, 40,000 are killed. In a bad year, 50,000 are killed. And that goes on year after year, and it's been going on for 50 years. I don't know when it started hitting those numbers. But the thing is, it's not just the 50,000 who were killed. It was everything related to somebody getting killed. So think of the hundred of other people, both in services and everything like that, that get killed by this. And then the other thing they were taking a look at was auto insurance. Why do you have auto insurance? Because people get injured and people get killed in auto accidents and things get wrecked. And they were just talking about the fact of what would happen if all that went away and you don't have car wrecks anymore. And you just see the massive, I mean, this is not an industry disruption. This is a major societal disruption, the very way that we've thought about cars. You look at the first photos or videos, you know, movies they have, of cars back from the early 1900s, and half of them are cars running into each other. You know, Dan, that's a set of domino effects of these exponential technologies that disrupt industries and then multiple industries that follow. I think maybe this would be a good topic for our next exponential wisdom. Why don't we dive into how exponential technologies are going to disrupt industries. Yes. That could be fun. What do you want to tee up as the industries we'll talk about first? Well, you and I have discussed this, and I know that you have a very deep interest in this, and we know Rob's sake, and I think agriculture is one of the biggest. I've got a lot of big farmers, and when I'm talking about farmers, I'm talking about farmers who are companies and have 25, 30,000 acres. So I think agriculture is a big one. Yeah, it's the largest human endeavor on the planet, right? Two trillion dollar industry. And why don't we also do transportation? We're just talking about autonomous yeah. cars. Shall we cover those two maybe next? Yeah, that would be great. Cool. All right. I'll see you next time. And thank you, everybody, for listening to Exponential Wisdom. Take care, Dan. Bye, Peter.